We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The names behind the numbers. The stories behind the names. This is the Her Hoop Stats Podcast with John Little. I think the biggest issue for the U.S. population, the U.S. media, the timing wasn't great. It was 13 hours ahead in Japan. People like seeing stuff live. People like watching things in sports as they are happening. And you just couldn't do that as easily when there's such a great time difference. The biggest newsmakers, the best storytellers. The Her Hoop Stats Podcast. Here's your host, John Little. Welcome in to the Her Hoop Stats Podcast. Long time no talk. I'm John Little, your host on the Her Hoop Stats Podcast. One of the many parts of the Her Hoop Stats Podcast here on our network. Great to have you along. Great conversation coming up today with Doug Feinberg, the national women's basketball writer for the AP and just such a trusted voice when it comes to women's basketball. He had an opportunity to go out to yet another Olympics for him. So we talk about that, of course. Uh, We talk about things related to the Olympics, uh, some of the big Olympians, how long they might stick around in the pro game as well. And we get into the possibility of WNBA expansion as well, where that might be headed. There's a lot to discuss with a guy that knows a ton. Here's our conversation with Doug Feinberg. John, always a pleasure. Tremendous sight, tremendous job by Aaron and her stats. That is so nice of you to say. We appreciate that. And it is a, a big time coming off of yet another trip to the Olympics for you. This one, I'm sure unlike any of the other ones that you've had in the past, what was it like uh, going out to tokyo this time uh for the olympics you know it's tough to say that this was an olympics in a sense because really with covid protocols the three weeks or so i spent in tokyo or actually saitama one of the suburbs of tokyo was really spent going back from a hotel room to the arena back to the hotel room it felt like groundhog's day Mm. every day (laughs) which 
I mean, listen, it, it's the Olympics. So as, as I said to all my friends, like the floor is still, I was at the Olympics. Usually the ceiling is so much higher, but COVID, I mean, it's, it's affected everyone for the last year and a half or so. It, it just, I mean, it felt like I was covering a basketball tournament and the best basketball tournament in the world, but it, it just didn't have that Olympic feel it normally has. Isn't that so odd? And I was amazed, and I guess it's just the power of the Delta variant and the and the power of COVID as a whole. I thought, man, uh, going into 2020, oh, seriously, we're going to have to cancel this thing? Uh, yeah, I guess we're going to have to cancel this thing or at least postpone it. But 2021, all systems go. Everything's going to be great. Uh, could you sense the disappointment from those that were on site hosting the event that this is not everything that they were promised as, you know, whether it be volunteers or uh, just people that have worked on this for more than a decade to get the Olympics to Tokyo? You know, I have to say, first off, the volunteers, the people working at the arena, the people around town, the, the people at the airport could not have been nicer. I mean, I've been to four of these now. And this group of people in, in Japan could not have been nicer, friendlier, helpful, more helpful than they were, just making the best out of obviously not a very good situation. I mean, they always were there smiling. They're always there being very helpful, um, directing you to where you need to go. Um, it, it just, from that standpoint, wow, what, what a special job they did in, in such a terrible circumstance. Um, an example, I mean, we all know Japan made the finals of women's hoops. It was special for them. There, there couldn't, fans weren't allowed in the, in the stadium. It was super, say Thomas Super Arena seats probably about 20,000 people, if not more. And it was empty except for the IOC reps and the volunteers. And when Japan was in the finals, there was probably about 500 volunteers who've been working all along in the basketball arena or in the surrounding area mm-hmm. in there watching their home team play. And it made it felt like it was a big game. They couldn't cheer. They weren't allowed to because of COVID restrictions, but they were applauding every great play, every play almost. And it just, it felt special for them to have something to reward them by having their team make the finals and win a silver medal. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, it's just unbelievable situation that we're in as a world and that, you know, we're able to pull off an Olympics, albeit a different one, probably something that's not getting celebrated enough i know on this side and i don't know if you were hearing the same thing it was more like uh yeah the olympics are going on but there is no fan base that can be there but covid cases are surging and it's the worst numbers they've ever seen in the tokyo area there was always almost this negativity at least media wise and i admit i am part of the media that came from this side of the world when you were talking about the Olympics. Did you get that same sense there? You know, it's funny you say that because I felt like I was in a bubble in a sense because our arena or the arena and the hotel are about a six-minute walk, and life felt normal over there. I mean, when you were able to walk to the hotel, to the arena, you saw people on the street. People weren't masks, obviously, but it, it didn't feel like a ghost town. It felt like a normal day in Saitama, Japan. We were sheltered from the the media, so to speak, in the U.S. just because, I mean, I had, I think, eight channels on my television set, all in Japanese, and <laughs> I think they were talking about uh, COVID, to be honest, what's going on. And also the numbers. I mean, you, you saw the numbers are going up, but I'm, I live in New York, born and raised, 
last March when things were not so great here, you felt, I mean, it was destroying the city. I, I did not feel that in Japan. I, I know the numbers are going up there. I don't think the Olympics did much that they were concerned concerned as be a super spreader. I don't think that was the case. They did a, a tremendous job. We were tested every morning. The, the percentage of tests that came back positive was very small, which was great to see and great to hear. Um, I, I don't think, I mean, I think the biggest issue for the, for the U.S. population, the U.S. media, it, the timing wasn't great. It was 13 hours ahead in Japan. So I think naturally just it wasn't an Olympics conducive to U.S. viewership and things of those nature because it just wasn't – people like seeing stuff live. People like watching things in sports as they are happening, and you just couldn't do that as easily when there's such a great time difference. Yeah, it definitely was tough. And, you know, the, uh, it was either going to be late at night, overnight, really early in the morning to be able to get some of those results as they came in live. For you, what was the best, um, performance that you felt you saw? If you're thinking about between the lines, what's going to be your lasting memory from this trip? That's a great question. I mean, I saw 50 some odd basketball games. The, the men's and women's hoops are in the same arena. So you really couldn't go to much besides basketball. I went over and watched some of the men's games and I, listen, I covered women's hoops now for gosh, like 15 years, give or take a year or two thrown in there. Um, so I'll, I'll throw a couple at you. I mean, listen, I hadn't seen Luka Doncic play live in the NBA at all. And his first game in the Olympics, he dropped 40 plus. I think it was 49 with about five minutes left in the game. They took him out to the blowout. That was impressive. And I know we're talking women's hoops here, but I would be remiss not to mention that because that was something special to watch. Hey, I'm a um, Dallas guy. You're, you're just fine talking Luca to me. You were, uh, right. you were okay. You were in good company. Uh, you're among friends here. <laughs> that, that was something special. Then on the women's side, I mean, Emma Misaman, the, the, I guess free agent, although I'm sure she'll go back to Washington at some point. She was unbelievable in the tournament. She carried Belgium. I mean, they, they didn't medal, but she she was great. I mean, she was the having thirty point games consistently. She was playing awesome. They couldn't stop her. She just she was really special to watch on the court from the standpoint of just a player who had an outstanding tournament, um, who people know obviously, and just really really was special to watch playing for her country. So. That's an individual performance. I mean, obviously the U.S. winning a, a seven straight gold medal and seeing Sue Bird and Diane Taurasi win their fifth, the most ever for any uh, basketball player. And then the two of them walking off sort of arm in arm after winning the gold medal was really neat, really special from that standpoint. And it's been a special career uh, for those two. And they're going to be linked, obviously, because of their UConn days, because of their similar age, because of their battles that they've had on the court. But then you've got the situation with their teammates uh, for the U.S. as well. You talked to Sue Bird recently uh, when she came to New York with Seattle. Where is she in relation to retirement now being 40? And, you know, she's even talked about it like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll worry about that when I worry about that. You mind your own business. And uh, we, uh, I understand. Uh, but at the same time, it's some, certainly a, a topic of conversation. Where do you feel like she's leaning right now? I mean, as she puts it, she's closer to the end than the beginning. Um, but the way she's playing, I don't see that end happening this year. I mean, she's playing great. She has Seattle in a good position um, when she's actually playing, not resting from the Olympics, uh, to be 
contending for another championship. I think she talked to me the other day, and it's one of those things where I think it's a joint decision between her and her fiancé, Megan Rapinoe, sort of what they both want to do since they're both on the tail ends of their careers. But I don't think she's decided. I mean, she basically said to me that she doesn't want to make it a decision during a season because it's she'll be emotional, and she's got to think about it and figure out what the best time to figure out what she wants to do with her future. So I think she'll make that decision in the offseason if she wants to give it another go or not. But I asked her, I said, listen, you're playing great right now, so you think you can play another five years if you wanted. She laughed at. She said, sometimes that makes it harder because you want to have something left in the tank when you retire. You don't want to sort of be carried off the court when you have nothing left to give or you're not playing your best anymore. So I'd say she gives another year just because this is another weird year with COVID still and there were fans, but they didn't really get to play at home and, and the new arena they're building there, which I think is opening next year or so. Maybe she does one more year and plays in front of the home fans in their new arena, um, which is, I think, a strong possibility. But she she keeps everything close to her vest. And, and to be honest, I wouldn't be shocked if she said this year is the end of it, although I'd be surprised if she didn't get one more go around. Well, and she deserves, um, you know, uh, and that's what I keep thinking for Sue, for Diana, for any athlete, and it could be in any sport during this COVID time. If they've been coming to the end of their career and they envision it as one thing and the fans are a big part of, you know, how they're going to feel at the end of their career, right? How they're going to uh, feel appreciated and and loved and, and they want to be able to share this moment uh, with these people that are so passionate about their performance. but. These athletes during this time can only enjoy it up to a certain point, whether it be the Olympics or whether it be their professional lives. And, and like I said, it could be any sport whatsoever. And we've seen it on the college side as well. You know, seniors that they've got no chance of playing in the pros, but they didn't get to have the, the send off that they, they wanted as well. This is a weird time for athletes at the end of their careers. There's so many things that people have lost. I mean, obviously, we lost life, and that's the most important thing. Absolutely. There's little things that people miss, and there are big things people miss in their lives. Graduations, last games, marriages, uh, funerals, whatever it may be that, you know, this Delta variant now is the latest one, but COVID is, is taken away from people. And, you know, if you have a chance to keep on doing something for one more year or two more years to sort of hopefully get through this and, and get – um, the adulation if you're Sue Bird or, or Diana or whoever you may be as an athlete that may be coming to the close of your career and you can still do it, I would think that may help weigh you to stick around an extra year, so to speak. But I, I said this to you, I said, listen, most people get, they, they, they call it quits, but some people definitely deserve farewell tours, so to speak. I mean, she's one of them. She's been in this league forever and is one of the most adored players in the league. And it would seem to be wrong if she just sort of went out and, and didn't get a chance for the fans to know that it was the last chance to see her and to thank her for all she's done for women's basketball. And it certainly seems to be the same for uh, Diana Taurasi. We could say uh, just about uh, everything we just said uh, about Sue. I'm sure you've told your story plenty on podcasts over the years, but I've never really heard it. I know that you've been um, a basketball coach at the high school level there in New York for a long time, but... You know, how did you fall in love with the women's game and with serving it in the way that you do and, and having it, you know, serve you in the in the way that it has uh, now for more than 25 years? What What's your story in that? So it, it's funny. Uh, years ago, when I first started coaching uh, sports in high school, um, I was coaching on the guy's side. 
and the women's JV spot opened up at the school I coach at. And the athletic said, hey, you know, why don't you, you love basketball, why don't you give it a shot? We'd love to have you be the head coach here for the JV girls hoops. I was like, sure, why not? That sounds like fun. First day of practice, I walked in and like, I didn't know what I was getting into. I'm used to like one level and there's another level, but it, I saw it as a challenge. And, and to me, the biggest thing is that the girls wanted to learn. They wanted to, to learn how to play basketball. And I saw that passion and I, I'm a passionate guy as far as basketball goes. And my passion for the sport passed on to them. And then a couple of years later, I started coaching the varsity and it just, it was one of those things where I saw how much they wanted to learn. And listen, I played basketball in college. I played basketball in high school. And guys think they know everything. I mean, that to me, like, all right, coach, whatever. And like girls from when I first started coaching wanted to learn. They wanted to sort of be sponges and soak things in. And that to me was special. And then from coaching basketball, the spot opened up the Associated Press um, for the women's basketball writer, because the guy Chuck Schaffner, who was the second guy ever to do the women's basketball poll behind the great Mel Greenberg um, at the AP, had retired. And there was an opening for women's basketball at the AP. And I said to the boss at the time, Terry Taylor, said, Terry, I'd love to cover women's basketball. I'd coach it. I know it. Um, I think it's an undercovered sport. I just love to be involved with it. And she's like, go ahead, all yours. So I started uh, doing college women's basketball, taking over the pole um, in 2007 or so. And, you know, it, it was just the last, I guess, 15 years later, I'm still doing it. And it's just great. I mean, telling stories about people who get under the sort of undersold and undertold to me is wonderful. And, and you see players for the most part stick around for four years in college. You get to know them as people. It's not their one and dones where like they go to the pros right away. And I just think it's, it's great stories to tell. And I really would never want to do anything besides women's basketball. That is just awesome. One of the things that culminated with was uh, winning the Mel Greenberg Media Award in uh, 2018. Being associated with Mel and, and known as one of the best contributors to women's basketball over the years. What does that mean to you? Well, listen, Mel's getting in the Hall of Fame next month for Naismith, the Kirk Gowdy Award winner. And that's long overdue and long, sure. long, well-deserved. He he was the guy who started. Without Mel, there wouldn't be the coverage for women's basketball there is today. As he was there, he's the pioneer. He's the guru. He's the one who got everything started. So to be associated with him in any capacity to me is, is a wonderful thing. Um, and to be honored by winning his award a couple of years ago by the WBCA was really, really special to me. Um, and, and just, I mean, it's been great. It's been a wonderful ride so far. It's been great to see the sport grow. I mean, there's been more and more people getting involved with it, more media attention on it, which is, is great for women's basketball. And I think it's well-deserved for all the players, all the coaches who have gone through this for years that were undercovered, underserved, to now be getting more attention. I mean, every day you see numbers come out for college basketball or, or WNBA that their ratings are up, their viewership's up. And that's just great. I mean, I think the only sport that was going up in the COVID times for ratings was women's basketball, one of the only sports. And that that's a sign that it is growing. And, and as Sue Bird, as to go full circle here, told me the other day when I asked her about their, their WNBA game that she didn't play in Chicago last weekend, having the highest ratings in, since 2012 for regular season games, she's like, I love to be where we're at a point where these aren't happening anymore mm. numbers are just there already so it's not like we're breaking records every time it's like 
expected. People are going to be watching. People are going to be writing about it. People are going to be involved in it, interested in it. And I think that's one of the great things that we're heading that direction in, in women's sports and women's basketball specifically. And I think that's a, a great thing for everybody. That's awesome. And there are a couple of different ways I can go here. I think that this is where I want to go, though. I've just been thinking about this a lot that, you know, I've been a, a women's basketball fan for a long time. I've called, you know, play by play for it for, uh, gosh, long, long time. But I, I really started to get involved with the actual concentrated media coverage uh, a couple of years back. And, you know, the big thing is Kathy Engelbert t- took over was, hey, when are we going to get expansion? And she tamped it down immediately. But now we're starting to see her talk about that a little bit more. How close do you think we are to WNBA expansion? Um, I would say that we're probably a couple years away, a couple meaning two or three. Um, I think, I mean, she she's always said, and the commissioners before have always said the right thing, right, presidents, she's the first commissioner of the WNBA, is that you have to get your house in order before you start looking outside of it. Right. And most of the teams are not making money with the WNBA. So if you keep on expanding and there's losing money to begin with, you're just losing more money. So once you get your sort of your house in order and people are maybe they're not making money, but they're close to breaking even, then you can think about getting more teams in the mix. And I think that's the biggest thing that she has been saying and said the, the presidents before her is – Make sure that your league is solvent and able to survive and flourish before you try to start bringing new teams in. And I think they're at the point now where they're getting more solvent. They're, they're obviously had these great deals the last couple of years. The Game Changers program she started, um, adding Google and adding Amazon Prime Video to the mix. Those are two of the biggest companies in the world, which doesn't uh, hurt from your, your bottom line, so to speak. Um, so I, I think that's important. And I, I think there will be expansion in the next couple of years. I know they're just, she said, at the All-Star Game um, before the Olympic break that they were going to start discussing it next year, which I think is important, as opposed to saying we'll discuss it down the road at the right point. Um, and I think they will expand. I think they'll add probably two teams is my guess. I don't think they'll add more than that right away, just to, so you can balance out and have one on each uh, conference that way, or if you want to realign, go ahead. Um, but I, I think it will be discussed the next year, and I think maybe two years, three years away, that they'll have it. And, and listen, the, the groups they brought in, I mean, the ownership groups, having Mark Davis buy the Las Vegas Aces from MGM, that's a huge ownership boon getting the NFL involved with the, obviously Davis owning the Raiders. Getting Josiah to buy the Liberty, that's another huge name as far as like finances go to, to make the team strong. And again, we're replacing Jim Dolan, who obviously people have problems against, but was a very good owner for the Liberty for the most part. And MGM, who bought the Aces from San Antonio, who did a tremendous job getting them into the Las Vegas marketplace. Yeah, it's a great point. And there seems to be interest, uh, you know, from uh, potential fan bases. And for some reason, even though, like you said, solvency is a... Uh, is an issue, you know, trying to uh, get into the into the black instead of into the red is a, a big problem. It seems like there's no shortage of investors and uh, people that want to uh, have their name associated with WNBA franchises. I don't think that, you know, finding the right owners, it, it feels like that doesn't feel like the biggest the biggest hurdle here uh, in, in your mind. What's what is the biggest hurdle and what is. Uh, you know, besides monetarily, obviously, uh, but, uh, you know, if we could dive just a little bit deeper into that, what is the biggest hurdle? And for fans that just don't understand why, you know, these things take so long, 
Um, why is it such a cautious thing for the WNBA to uh, wade through here? Well, I think part of it is I, I think finance is a big deal. I mean, you have to have the money to be able to buy a team. and It's, it's not inexpensive. It's not we're not talking NFL billions here. We're talking millions. But you have to have a, a, a franchise that's going to work. And there's been obviously over the years, many teams that have folded the WNBA or moved. You need to have a, a solid fan base that's going to be able to support a team through thick and thin, so to speak. And it's usually not thick to begin with. Usually it's like things don't start out well for franchises that are new expansion mm-hmm. teams. Um, from the win standpoint, from just getting free agents there. I mean, it's little things like that. So, um, I, I think that's, I don't know if it's a big hurdle, but it's something that they have to consider. You have to find the right marketplace that's willing to support a team. And they're out there. I mean, there's no question. I mean, Kathy's Engelbert's always said that she's gets hit up by fans saying, move to our city or come to our city. I think there's some great ones out there. I mean, there was one Toronto people have talked about for years. They, there's interest up there. The Raptors have been a great franchise on the NBA side. They really energized the fan base. Canada basketball has been on the rise for the last decade or so. So I think that's important. So you look at places that have had success, I think on the NBA side helps to sort of as many of the NBA franchises that have WNBA uh, sisters, so to speak, have been successful from that standpoint. I think that is a, a, a important factor to consider. Also, what's been a strong women's basketball market, I think, for colleges helps because mm-hmm. if you already have fans there that are interested in the sport, it helps get them to want to come to watch play uh, the, the pro level. Um, but those are probably the two biggest things I would look at. I don't know, again, I don't know if those are hurdles per se, but I, I think that's the, the, the things you have to consider is like where are you going to be able to have a team that's going to be able to flourish from a fan base and financially And I think those are two things you have to look at as far as when you're trying to find a city that might be right for expansion. As we look toward the college season, what are some of the storylines that you're looking forward to? And, uh, you know, I just had flash in my head uh, the NCAA saying that they're going to use March Madness uh, for both the, the men's and women's side, which seems like. Duh. Uh, You know, you're just now figuring this out. How do you feel like that's going to play out and how could that help? Uh, Let's just start with that topic. How could that help uh, the women's game this season to have that synergy implemented here? Well, it's a big topic to uh, close out on here. Um, Yeah, exactly. Uh, We we may go another hour now that I think about it. Let's let's break it down a little bit first. So using March Madness is a branding thing. So People think of the NCAA tournament, they think of the men's tournament, March Madness. That's what it's known for with all the upsets and everything. So by adding it to the women's side, I think it's going to help sort of make it since they're 50% of the tournament is women is women's basketball. 50% men's basketball, 50% women's basketball. Um, although I guess we're a little bit off because there's 68 teams on the men's side. There's still 64 on the women's, though that may be growing at some point soon. So we equal number on both sides. But I think just having the name March Madness associated with the uh, women's tournaments can be helpful from the branding standpoint and people understanding, hey, there's two tournaments out there. March Madness is just a whole entity of, of NCAA tournaments in, in that month. Um, I, I think that a little bit was overblown last year and the report that the, the Kaplan group did was awesome to sort of break down what the problems were. But last year was an anomaly, as we talked about with COVID, that mm-hmm. having the entire tournament in one city is not ever happening again with neutral sites in the immediate future for women's basketball. For the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, they've been using home sites for the first couple of rounds. And that, that's not the same as being in a neutral site. So all the issues with the weight room and the food and the equity, 
a lot of that doesn't really exist in normal times for the women's tournament because they're playing on home sites. And the next question is obviously, why don't they play on neutral sites like the men do? I don't think the fan bases there support it yet. I mean, for the most part, the men's tournament for the first couple of rounds aren't sold out because fans don't go to random sites for uh, the first two rounds, hoping that the teams make it out of the first weekend and playing in the Sweet 16 and beyond. So I think that it's great that uh, adding March Madness to the mix for the women is wonderful. I think some of the other suggestions they had about adding a couple of teams to the field to make equal 68 would be great for the women's side. I think also um, some of the stuff they want to put in down the road, maybe make the WNIT way the NCO pay for some of it so that the teams aren't going out and paying their own way to play in a, a postseason tournament. It's a great thing. Um, I, I think we'll see a lot of stuff down the road as far as putting the two tournaments together, which is one of the big points of emphasis from the Kaplan report. Um, I suggest this a couple of years ago. I thought it could be something to try just just have it one sort of global weekend in one city. It could be wonderful for the NCAA tournament. Um, but there is the fear again, as going full circle, as I told you, as you mentioned, I coached high school basketball. There are times that when the girls and guys would play double headers, the girls were seen as the JV game, so to speak, and not the varsity game because of just attendance for it. You might have the same problem if you go to the same city that people might say, Oh, we'll go watch the women play, but the men have the prime time Monday night game to close out March Madness. So I, I think it's worth trying, but there are things you have to do to put in place to make sure it's successful for both genders, especially for the women, if you try to mix the two tournaments into one city. I love that. And that just makes me think about my time in a small town in Oklahoma for eight years where predominantly the girls were the better team and not just the better team, the much better team. But they would play before the guys. Right. And for some reason, even though they're the better product, they are the dominant team. There are less people in the stands for the girls than the guys. And it never made sense to me. Maybe it's just general misogyny, um, you know, of, of any spot in the United States. It may just not be, uh, uh, you know, Western Oklahoma. I'm not trying to uh, call out my friends there, but it is certainly um, something that I've seen with my own eyes. You've seen with your own eyes. And, you know, you you don't want to put, you know, um, the the players in that position. But at the same time, you do want to elevate them to the spot that they deserve so it just to me it feels like you're walking a tightrope just a little bit there definitely and listen i've had ad's and i've had conference commissioners tell me that one of the biggest problems with the final four weekend is that they're in two different cities so sponsorship activation and meetings and such you're flying back and forth if you decide to go back and forth and usually if they don't they're staying the men not going to the women and having it in one city would make that life so much easier. You could have, I mean, I think there was a Miley Cyrus concert, the men's tournament last year or two years ago, that if you have them in the same city, it's a tour, it's a concert for everyone to go to, not just the men's fans. So that helps. And again, if you're having meetings about whatever for at the athletic director level or whatever level it may be, having everyone in the same city makes life easier for that. And maybe you celebrate both men's and women's tournament finals the same way. If you're in the same place, I understand that. I just think, as you said, and we've seen, there is the fear that if you go to the same place, things might get lost for one of the two tournaments. And that would be unfortunate because the odds are it would be the women's tournament that would be the one that would be affected by that, not the men's tournament. Well, it's all to play out in the future, but it's good to think about now. And, man, I can't thank you enough for your time. This just flew by, Doug, your wealth and knowledge. And we've got to do this again sometime. Thank you so much for your time today. 
My pleasure. Always great to chat with you. That's the great Doug Feinberg here on the Her Hoop Stats podcast. Really appreciate him joining us. If you enjoyed this, make sure to rate and review the conversation. Give it five stars or so. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to the feed. We've got so many other great discussions and conversations uh, going on on this feed, and you don't want to miss it. The voice of the Her Hoop Stats podcast is Susie Solis. Our music by Jared Deck, jareddeckmusic.com. And Aaron Barzilai is the executive producer of the show. I'm John Little, reminding you, at the Her Hoop Stats podcast, we're unlocking better insight about the women's game. Her Hoop Stats. Her Hoop Stats.